Charlie Plum was born in Kansas, grew up in Mission, Kansas. And I uh, won't tell you a lot about his childhood and that kind of thing, but he fell in love with a, with a woman named Anne, and they planned their life together, but he had also joined the Air Force and uh, ended up learning how to fly jets. And he was sent over to Vietnam to fly the F-4B Phantom Jet. The F-4B, a titanium frame, twin-engine fighter bomber that was able to carry nine tons of armaments, total payload, 18,000 pounds of air-to-surface and air-to-air missiles and conventional bombs. With a top speed of over 1,200 miles an hour, it could make a vertical climb of eight miles in one minute. It was a formidable aircraft, warcraft. And Charlie Plum, commissioned as a captain in the Air Force, was the pilot of this F-4B Phantom Jet, which was assigned to the Navy aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. And they were over there near Vietnam as he would make repeated runs, repeated missions over Vietnam, bombing missions. He had 74 successful missions, but he flew 75 times. On May 19th, 1967, just about 44 years ago to the day, he was shot down. He and his co-pilot lost all control of their plane. They were flying upside down near the ground. And his co-pilot said, Captain, should we eject? Well, that may not be the best choice right now. So he fought the controls and with only control of the rudder was able to get the plane to tip mostly upright and then they ejected and at that speed were instantly knocked unconscious by the air impact and then awoke shortly thereafter as they were fluttering down to the ground. They quickly hid the radio, they called on the radio, they hid their notes. He started eating his, uh, his orders and uh, said a quick prayer for himself and for his wife, Anne. Very soon the villagers got to them, they stripped him, they blindfolded him, and because they didn't have a jail to put him in, they put him in a pen with a bull. Locked him in a pen with a bull. He's blindfolded, he's naked, he's standing there, he's bound, and there's a bull in the pen with him. Well, they ended up uh, holding him until they got him uh, uh, to the uh, soldiers who took him to a prison camp where he was tortured, and he was starved, and he was beaten, and he was humiliated. And in that prison, in that little prison cell, where there was no room to move and there was no one to communicate with, he started to feel sorry for himself. Wouldn't you? He started to feel sorry for himself. He was dejected. He was lonely because there was no one to communicate with. He felt all of this was unfair because he had done everything right. He was a good boy. He had studied hard. He did everything the way he was supposed to. And if there was a God, this is what he got for it. I think what he thought to himself was, it hurts to be me. It hurts to be me. One day as he sat in his cell, he heard a noise over in the corner of the cell. It sounded like a cricket, strange kind of cricket. Looked over there, there was no bug. He thought he saw something. He went over to investigate, and there was a little piece of wire coming through a hole in the corner of his cell. A little piece of wire poking back and forth, scratching, making a little cricket noise. Now, he didn't know if that was a trick, if that was someone in another cell, if that was his enemy captors baiting him to do something. But he eventually worked up the nerve, and he went over and he grabbed that end of the wire. 
and he tugged on it. He felt the tug on the other end, and he tugged on it, and the wire disappeared. What was that all about? And a little while later, that wire came back with a little tiny piece of toilet paper wrapped around it. And he pulled that little toilet paper off, and it said, memorize this code, then eat this note. So he memorized the code, and he began communication by wire with the guy in the cell next to him, Lieutenant Colonel Bob Shoemaker. By that little code on the wire, and that communication changed his life. Now he was not isolated. Now he was not alone. Now he had someone he could share with. You know, Adam and Eve were in a similar situation. Oh, they had flown many successful missions, but they got shot down. They fell into enemy hands, and they became prisoners of war, as are we. They saw death, they saw suffering, they saw torture, and they felt alone and unable to communicate and that things were so unfair. And I think they said to themselves, it's un- it hurts to be me. But they had a wire too. And the lesson is still there for us, that there is a wire. When we're in those dark moments, and it feels like we're all alone, there's still a means of communication. All we have to do is grab it and use it, and there's someone on the other side who will communicate with us. I want to introduce for the children, I want to teach you that code that these prisoners of war in Vietnam were using. It's called the TAP code. It actually has roots all the way back thousands of years. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to have a paper and pencil. You've got a paper and pencil? Paper and pencil. This is pretty easy stuff. You know how to do tic-tac-toe, do you not? You know how you draw that grid for a tic-tac-toe? You're going to do the same thing, except you're going to have six lines up and six lines across. When you do that, you will end up with 25 squares. Five squares across, five squares down. Okay? So you've got that grid, a five-by-five grid of squares. Then all you do is you write the alphabet into those squares, just going across. Start in the top one, write an A. In the one next to it, write a B. In the one next to it, write a C. Skip the letter K, because our grid is 25, and there's 26 letters in the English alphabet. But you don't really need to use the K. You can use a C for that. So skip the letter K. So you're going to have in the first row, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Okay? And then the code is nothing more than giving the number of the row and then the number of the column. So, for example, the letter A is row 1, column 1. That's an A. Z is row 5, column 5. You write that out. Because I'm going to use that code during the sermon a couple of times, and you see if you can figure out what I'm saying. It's an easy code to learn. Because that middle row, from your, your days of singing the alphabet, you know LMNOP. That's the middle row, LMNOP. Well, they used that code there in the prison camp in the Hanoi Hilton very effectively. You didn't even need the wire, really. You could use the wire. But they could even take a stone and just tap on a wall. 
Like a Morse code, you have to be able to make two different kinds of sounds, a short one and a long one. But with a tap code, all you need is a tap. It's just a number of taps. So they were able to communicate with each other. Sometimes when they were sitting next to each other, bound and gagged and weren't allowed to talk, they could bump each other with their foot and tap messages to each other. And by doing that, they were able to learn who all was in the camp. And when someone new came in, they would get into contact with that person as they did with uh, Charlie Plum and learn about that person and, and uh, how they got there and, and how they got shot down or how they got captured and all these different kinds of things. And it created a powerful means of communication. As a matter of fact, the prisoners in the Hanoi Hilton would talk to each other through that tap code about what they were being asked in interrogations. And then they would spread amongst themselves what answers they were going to give. So they had a consistent message to their captors. Well, of course, Charlie Plum wasn't the only person in that prison camp. Another fella ended up there through a rather odd twist of events, a seaman from the Navy whose last name was Hegdal. Seaman Hegdal. He did not get shot down. He did not get uh, blown up and captured. He was on a Navy ship and fell off. They were, in the, they were in the Gulf of Tonkin, and they were firing some five-inch sh- shells, and the blast sent him overboard. And his shipmates, who were responsible for him, were afraid they'd get in trouble, so they didn't tell anyone for two days that Seaman Hegdal had fallen overboard. So he ended up getting picked up by some fishermen, and they took him in, and long story short, he ended up being taken to the same prison camp. Here's, a, here's an account of Seaman Hegdal, Doug Hegdal's story. On April 6, 1967, this is actually a month and a half before Charlie Plum got shot down, 19-year-old Doug Hegdal was knocked overboard by the blast from a 5-inch gun mount on the USS Carabera in the Gulf of Tonkin, three miles off the coast. He swam until he was picked up several hours later by North Vietnamese fishermen who treated him well. Trying to cover for him, his shipmates did not report him missing for two days, so the commanding officer didn't even know to look for him. Hegdal was turned over to Vietnamese militiamen who treated him less hospitably, clubbing him repeatedly with their rifles before moving him to the infamous Hanoi Hilton prison. Listen to his story. Very fascinating. The interrogators first insisted that he must be a commando or an agent because that whole story about being blown off the ship just didn't work for them. He quickly realized that he'd be much better off if he pretended to be a fool. Hegel was slapped around for a few days before convincing his captors that he was of little to value to them. His bumpkin demeanor, his youthful appearance, his country accent aided in his ability to convince them that he was no threat to them. He was given almost complete run of the plantation, which was a satellite POW camp near the Hilton. When they asked him to write statements against the United States, he agreed, except he let them know he didn't know how to read or write. So they, uh, they thought they had someone who could be easily turned to their cause, so they assigned someone to teach Doug Hegdal to read. After Hegdal appeared to be incapable of learning to read and write, his captors gave up on him. Later, he came known to the Vietnamese. He was known as the incredibly stupid one. <laughs> what a great nickname to have in life. Oh, is the incredibly stupid one nearby? He didn't mind, of course, because they thought that he was so stupid, they gave him nearly free reign of the camp. With the help of Joe Krekka, a U.S. Air Force officer and a fellow prisoner, Hegdal memorized the names of everyone in the camp. 
every prisoner. And he memorized the date of their capture. And he memorized the method of their capture. And he memorized personal information about them to include address, phone number, spouse or parent's name for 256 prisoners. Every detail memorized to the tune of Old MacDonald had a farm. That's how he memorized it. And according to the article that I'm reading from, he can still recite it today. Well, that became very important because uh, at one point, the North Vietnamese agreed on a propaganda move that they were going to release three prisoners. Now, all the prisoners had made a pact amongst themselves that they would never be released. If they offered to let one go, they wouldn't. It's all of us or none of us, we stick together. They survived. They had strength in, in sticking together. But they realized Doug Hegdel knows every inch of this camp, knows everybody that's in here, knows our loved ones' names and addresses, and can tell everyone that we're here and report to our families. So they pretty much ordered Doug, you are going to be released. We want you to go. Two other men also, two officers went with him. They broke their pact and uh, sort of selfishly went out and, uh, and agreed to be released. Well, how powerful would that be? To have somebody with that information. Because your family has no idea where you are. They don't know if you're dead or alive. To have somebody come and knock on your door and tell you and give you the detail of where your loved one was. There are four categories when someone doesn't come back from war. There's killed in action. We know that one. Killed in action, um, a true KIA, and they bring the body back and we have a funeral. There are also killed in action, body not recovered, where we know that there was a death, but we cannot bring the body back. Then there is missing in action, which was pretty much the title given to all of these prisoners of war until they were confirmed as prisoners of war, and then they got that title, prisoner of war. So there's four different categories, two KIAs, two M or an MIA, and a prisoner of war. Doug Hegdel got released. While the other two officers went out and partied and had fun with their friends and family, Doug Hegdel went on a mission and went door to door to all of these places that he had memorized for 256 prisoners and told their loved ones what was going on with that person, reported to, their supervi to, the, to that person's supervisor where that person was being held, when they got shot down or when they got captured and how they got captured, gave the entire inventory, memorized by the incredibly stupid one. How important would that be to get that message of hope? If you were a family member, if you were a friend, if you were a loved one, to know that that person was still alive and okay, maybe not in the best of conditions, but what does that give you? Hope. How powerful is that? Gives you hope. Remember when John was in prison and was losing hope? And he got that message out. He tugged the wire and he got that message out to Jesus in Matthew 11, 2 through 6. He says, are we doing the right thing? Are we... Uh, do we need to look for someone else? Remember Jesus' classic response? He told, he told those disciples, go back and tell John what you've seen. Tell him what's going on. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised again. John needed some affirmation. He wasn't looking to get out of prison. 
He just needed some hope, some affirmation, some encouragement. All right, children, you ready? I considered giving the entire sermon in tap code. <laughs> You're welcome. I chose not to. How powerful is a message, no matter how you get it, whether it's tapped or sent by relay or given directly, to get a message of hope, to get a message of encouragement. First, there needs to be a means of communication, and you need to use it. But second, the power of getting a word of encouragement, of getting some hope. There's more to Charlie Plum's story. 2,103 days after being captured, 2,103 days after being captured, he was released. Davey, you good at math? No? <laughs> there was no hesitation in that. Anybody want to tell me roughly how many years is 2,103 days? Six years? It's over five years, close to six years. In that prison, with about the only means of communication, tap code. He was released. He was brought back to America. You saw some of those, some of you are old enough to remember some of those prisoners of war coming back, and you remember some of the images of what they did and some of them who bent down and kissed American soil when they landed on it. Powerful images. What do you suppose Charlie Plum's going to, what's, what's going to be on his agenda? Six years of dreaming and wishing and hoping and waiting. Six years of praying. He called his wife. She wasn't there. So he called his dad, and his dad answered, and he had a conversation, an awkward conversation with his dad, and Finally, his dad was a little too choked up and gave the phone to his mom because Charlie kept saying, where's Ann? And his mother said, I would give my right arm not to have to tell you this. She divorced you one month ago and is getting remarried. It hurts to be me. You know, Adam and Eve, after they caught hold of that wire and found that way to communicate with God, after their tragedy, after their loss, after being taken prisoners of war, they still, after that communication was reestablished, lost a son. As a matter of fact, they lost two sons. I was at a sentencing hearing recently over in Wapaka County for a 
for a man who had a resentencing, really. He had appealed his sentence, and he was having a resentencing for a homicide he had committed several years ago where he had beaten another man to death. And you can imagine maybe some of you have been in those situations where you come into the courtroom and there is the family of the victim on one side and the family of the suspect on the other side, and they don't talk to each other. And the family of the victim makes out the suspect or the defendant to be the worst person in the world and how horrible he's a monster. And the people who are friends and family of that suspect or that defendant talk about what a wonderful person he is and how big his heart is and how this was just an anomaly. And and the very wise judge said, you know, no matter what I do here today, both sides walk out of here losers. Because we're still... The victim is still dead, and the defendant is still going to be in prison, just a matter of how long. And nobody can take back what happened. John faced tragedy when he was in prison. The wire didn't prevent him from getting beheaded. Elijah, David, Daniel. You can go on and on through the list of all these people who had that wire and had that communication with God and yet faced terrible tragedy. Charlie Plum found after he returned to learn that his wife was remarrying. We all face times of doom. Remember when the children of Israel were at the Red Sea and they saw the, the Egyptians coming after them. Red Sea in front of them, Egyptians behind them, nowhere to go. What a sense of impending doom. Or later on, they were in the desert, a million people. And no food. Just an incredible sense of impending doom. Or when Israel was facing the Philistines in the valley of Elah, and that giant of a man came out there and taunted them, send me anybody, I'll take you on. What a sense of doom. Or Mary and Martha, after the death of Lazarus, that funeral, wailing and crying, the loss of a loved brother, just darkness, blackness, doom. Have you felt that? Have you had those black moments where it's just, it's just darkness, it's just doom, and you can't see how things are going to get any better? You know, if we did an inventory, you don't have to go back very far. You just start to account recent events, and you could get very quickly caught up and think that you live in just a world of doom and that there is no hope. You could talk about earthquakes. You could talk about the tsunami. You could talk about the nuclear disaster in Japan, about all the things going on in Syria, innocent people dying, the uprisings in the Middle East. Um, I was really struck by this two-year-old girl. It seems like every year we hear a tragedy just like this, but a two-year-old girl a month or so ago in Dale, up on Highway, uh, Highway 96, was, uh, her dad accidentally ran over her with the vehicle and killed her in the driveway of a family home. There are times when it is black and we say, it hurts to be me. And yet, and yet, what if the children of Israel in that moment of doom had gone back? One of the greatest miracles we know of, the crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, followed immediately after that moment of blackness. Children of Israel starving in the desert and they can't see any way out of it. And manna from heaven delivers them from the moment of blackness. Goliath is taunting the children of Israel, making fun of them, scaring the wits out of them. And David, with a stone and a sling, knocks him down and chops his head off with his own sword. Mary and and Martha at the funeral 
blackness, no hope, only doom, and one of the greatest miracles of the New Testament. The doom, the blackness, is the garden in which these great deliverance seeds are planted. It may just be that your greatest hour of doom is the very moment of anticipation for God to reveal his loving intervention. And so that brings us to the issue of what our attitude will be when we face that darkness, that blackness. I, I know you've all heard this, but it's worth reading. Chuck Swindoll has a famous quote about attitude. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude, to me, is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company or a church or a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we're going to embrace for that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. You know, I think none of us probably would have been surprised if Charlie Plum had gone through that entire that entire ordeal for nearly six years being prisoner of war, came back, found his wife that he was praying for, that he was waiting for, that he was hoping for, finding out that she was getting remarried, it probably wouldn't have surprised us if he said, I'm done, and he took himself out. He didn't. Today, Charlie Plum is a very highly sought-after motivational speaker. He tells of his experiences how the very things that kept him alive and positive in the worst of conditions are the very same things that help us today through the little prison camps of our lives. Communion with God, the wire. Encouraging one another, the message of hope, and choosing to have a positive attitude. You know, Ellen White went through that same kind of black doom. Tell me if this sounds like a quote from Ellen White. It is. I am now propped up on my bed by pillows, half lying or half sitting, bolstered up sitting in an uncomfortable chair. It is very painful to my hip and to the lower part of my spine to sit up. If such easy chairs were to be found in Australia, where she was at this time, as you have in the sanitarium, I would quickly buy one even if it cost $30, a great amount back then. It is with great weariness that I can sit erect and hold up my head. I must rest it against the back of the chair or on the pillows, half reclining. This is my condition just now. You know what I read in that? It hurts to be me. But then she went on. But I'm not at all discouraged. I feel that I am sustained daily. In the long, weary hours of the night, when sleep has been out of the question, I have devoted much time to prayer. And when every nerve seemed to be shrieking with pain, when if I considered myself, it seemed I should go frantic, the peace of Christ has come into my heart in such measure that I have been filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. I know that Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. Isn't it amazing how moments of great emotion sometimes 
focus things into the simplest of terms. We can talk about doctrine. We can talk about belief. We can talk about history of the church. We can talk about the 27 or 28 fundamental beliefs. We can argue about these things. But ultimately, in that moment of despair, in the, in the blackness, in the, in, the, in the times when you say it hurts to be me, Ellen White's crystal clear message was, I know Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. She didn't let go of the wire, the communication. She was able to find encouragement, and she chose a positive attitude, and so must we. And for those who weren't trying, that was amen. Mighty God, there are times that all of us say it hurts to be me. And there are times when we just can't see where to go because it's too dark, it's too black. And we just can't find the hope. Father, help us always to remember that you're holding out that wire. You are tapping to us your love. You are tapping to us your desire for us to communicate with you and that communication that wire is always there and father help us to understand the power of an encouragement and hope for the people around us when we are in that blackness and we need that hope or when we have someone around us who is in that blackness help us to be their hope help us to be their encourager and father help us also to take control of our attitude because we have a choice in every situation how we will respond. Help us to respond in love and faith and hope and trust in you. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your love, for your patience with us. Help us to grow closer to you always. In Jesus' name we pray.